decided to come before you this morning with the $25,000 question. Will Jesus return in our lifetime? I thought it'd be good to start with just a show of hands. It's kind of interesting. We had a Friday night Bible study, and that question was brought up. Uh, I don't think that was planned, but it came up. And some thoughts were shared concerning a belief in the return of Christ. But I wonder, do we believe that Jesus will return in our lifetime? If we had those little button things in the pews, we could do that and tabulate that. We said, well, you know, such and such percent of Lakeshore uh, believes in the return of Christ in, in our lifetime. But since we don't have that, a show of hands is the only other way to go. So I wondered if you would be willing to raise your hand and say, I believe that Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. Uh, not necessarily a right or wrong answer here, but just an opportunity to share your conviction and opinion. If you feel inclined to raise your hand and say, I believe he'll come in my lifetime, do so. Do so. Sure. Okay. All right. It's kind of interesting. When I see those of you that raise your hands, I see the conviction too. And, uh, and I hear you. Because I've had that kind of gut feeling for a long time. I sort of came of age during the second coming frenzy. I've talked about that before. There was a lot of emphasis on the return of Christ. And you better get your life in order because you may not get to live too many years uh, to be an adult anyway. And so I had that conviction. And that's just, just been a gut feeling. That's the best way I could describe it. A gut feeling I've had for a long time. Now, I, I've spent a lot of my life trying to sort out, is that wishful thinking or is that a real conviction that the Lord has placed there? And honestly, I don't know. And probably the rest of us that raised our hands would have to say that. I got that gut feeling, but I don't know if I'm just wishing for that to happen or if God has really placed that there. Maybe you've got that conviction that God has already placed that there. But uh, whatever the case, it's interesting uh, that I believe probably every generation of Christians has at best wished that they would be that generation. And, and that may be the case with ours as well. We may just be wishing and just saying, wouldn't it be great, God, if you'd send your son Jesus back while I'm alive, to be one of those left, to, to look up and see the sky open, and to not have to go through the process of death, but to be changed, and to rise up to meet Christ in the air as he comes back. That would be great. But again, it may be wishful thinking. It's something that uh, we need to constantly thinking about. As far as Jesus returning in our lifetime, there have been many people who have speculated on the time of his return and have been very, very wrong in trying to answer that question. One of the most notable of history goes back to the 1800s. A Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller had calculated out of Scripture, in particular out of Daniel, and he had arrived at the dates of 1843 to 1884. At least he didn't pick a date initially. He just said, this seems to be the year time frame according to the calculations, when Christ should come back. And uh, from what I understand of history, there were those who pressed him to study it a little bit further and, and pressed him for a date. And so he arrived at October the 22nd, 1844. You can imagine the, the amount of energy that generated. People saying, well, if Jesus is going to come back on that date, we've got to get ready for that. Well, as we know, living this far beyond that date, it didn't happen. And history records October the 23rd, 1844, as the great disappointment. I want to say, duh to that. Well, sure. <laughs> if you were convinced Jesus was going to come back this date, absolutely sure he'd be back today, but yet tomorrow morning we had to get up and go to work and do those other things, sure, that'd be the great disappointment because we'd realize that that was not quite right. Others throughout history picked other dates. 
1914 was picked by one group of people as the year of the return of Christ. Others calculated and found 1975 to be the year of his return, and even more recently, 1981, some were convinced, was the year of his return. But really, to all those dates, I think I can confidently stand before you this morning and say, they were wrong. Sure, we wouldn't be here if they were right. And I guess as I think about all these people, good scholars, many of them, who picked out a date and a time when Jesus would come back, it is amazing to me how good students of the Bible can overlook one of the clearest teachings of Jesus himself on this subject. So if you are prone to study the Bible and pick a date before you do it, let me take you to this verse, Matthew 24, verse 36. In case you're tempted, like many others, to pick a date, the very words of Jesus. By the way, if you're not in Matthew 24, you might as well turn there, because that's where we're going to spend our time. But verse 36, I don't know how it could be more clear than this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That is such a clear verse and a riveting verse. No one knows the day or the hour. You know, I had an elder once come up to me and say, you know, I know it says that, but it doesn't say you can't know the month and the year. Uh, where's that coming from? I'm not sure if he was up for re-election that year or not. But anyway, I, I think that's taken a little bit too far. He says the day, you don't know the time of the return of Christ. The angels of heaven don't know that. And interesting, Jesus says, I don't know that. Some people say Jesus and the Father are one and the same. If that's the case, how come Jesus wouldn't know what he knows? You know, if he's God, why doesn't he know that? Jesus doesn't know information that's reserved for the Father alone. God, it's a need-to-know basis, and he hasn't told me yet. And I've kind of wondered how this plays out. He sits right now at the right hand of God. Does he know this information now? I don't know. I wonder if there's just a point in time where God looks to him and says, this is the moment. Right now is when I've destined for you to return to the earth. Is that, I don't know. That's just, I'd like to think it's going to be that way, but, but that may not be the case at all. But either way, when he stood upon the earth, as he talked to his disciples, he said, God has not revealed to me the day when I will come back. If Jesus doesn't know, the best of Bible scholars, including us, we aren't going to know that either. So do not try to pick a date. It's a huge mistake. Here's one that's been a bit troubling to me, but uh, I need to share it with you anyway. I think it's entirely possible that the Apostle Paul was mistaken about the nearness of the return of Christ. There's some indication that he seemed to believe that Jesus would return in his lifetime. A familiar passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, or 4, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, talking about the sequence of events at the return of Christ, he says, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. When he said we, I just read that and I think, Paul must have thought he would be among those alive and remaining until the time of the Lord. And that's a little shattering for me in some ways. Paul, no doubt, moved by the Spirit of God, no doubt hoping and dreaming for that event to happen then, but it seems that was not the case because he is not alive now. If this should be the generation, he is not living at the time of the return of Christ, but no doubt he lived in expectancy of that. And so uh, that's kind of interesting that Paul believed it, 
uh, would happen soon. In fact, that whole church that he wrote to in Thessalonica believed that Christ would come back. Those who were dead, they thought, had missed out entirely because he would have come back that quickly. Well, it's not a bad thing to believe in the nearness of the return of Christ. It is tremendously motivating. And we need to believe that it could happen at any moment. That provides the incentive and the motivation to gather together like we've done today, to live a holy and a dedicated lifestyle, to anticipate that things are going to change. That's a good thing. And so it's not bad at all to believe in the nearness of the return of Christ. Again, back to our question, will Jesus return in our lifetime? There are three chapters in the Bible that give us the most specific information to be found. We're going to look at one of those chapters, but the three chapters are Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. These are the accounts of Jesus describing the events leading up to the end of this age. And again, we're going to spend a few moments in Matthew 24. We would need to spend a lot of time really digging into this chapter. We can only take a brief look at it today, but I think it's important that we do so. So again, look in Matthew 24. I'd like to jump right into the first three verses because these verses set the stage for this entire chapter. If you want to understand this whole chapter, note well what the first three verses say. And here's what we read. Jesus came out from the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So, they're making a comment on the beautiful, beautiful temple that existed at that time. Verse 2, he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Just a matter-of-fact statement. He had not sought to teach them on the subject, but they came up and they made a comment. What a beautiful building. And, and indeed, the temple of that time was a magnificent structure. And it's as if he says in verse 2, Oh, by the way, you see that? There, there's a day coming when there'll not be a single stone left on another. That's amazing. That'd be like going to Washington, D.C. and commenting on the Capitol building or, or something like that. Say, oh, by the way, there's a time coming and there won't be one stone left there. That would be shocking information. So that leads into verse 3, that as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, I want you to notice their questions, tell us when will these things happen, when that temple will be destroyed and not one stone left on another, when will these things happen? And along with that, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, they are posing three very, very important questions. I want you to notice that verse 3 says that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. So there's probably been a bit of time after his comments about the temple. And you just picture yourself being one of the disciples. You've just heard this uh, sensational information. <clears throat> You've had a little bit of time to think about it. It's like... If he knows that, we need to talk about it. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, sits down, and they proceed to ask those questions. Now, again, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. There is huge significance in that. In the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 4, a very interesting verse concerning the coming of the Son of God. It says, in that day, that day referring to the time when he comes and appears upon the earth, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem, in the east. And the Mount of Olives, it says, will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, 
so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half to the south. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Jesus no doubt knew full well there would be a day coming as the Son of God when his feet would come and stand on the Mount of Olives. That was not the time. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives at his first coming. But uh, knowing God's plan for him, he knew full well, as he instructed his disciples on this very important subject, knowing full well there would be a day when God would send him back and his feet would touch that mount he was sitting on and a great earthquake would occur. It would literally be split apart. And so he knew that. He knew Zechariah's prophecy. He knew about himself from Scripture. And so there on that very place where his feet would stand in victory, he is sitting and instructing his disciples as they ask these three important questions. When will these things happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed, Jesus? And by the way, what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Remember those three questions well, because everything else, the rest of this chapter, it's a lengthy chapter, everything else revolves around those three questions. And so if we want to know what this chapter is about, what he's teaching about, we have to keep those things in mind. So with that, we get into verses 4 to 8. And he's giving us some of the general characteristics of the age. I believe that's what these verses are about that we want to read here. He's describing what's it going to be like through the rest of the age from that time when he spoke those words right on down until the end of the age. And it says, He answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But notice verse 8, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. I think a lot of people overlook that verse and look at these other things happening and say, aha, we're in the last days. Because there's wars and there's rumors of war. There's political, military upheaval in the world. There's widespread famine and earthquakes. See, those things tell us that the world's about to end. That's not what he said at all. Verse 8 is very important. Those are just the beginnings. Those are just the signs of the times. He said those are things that will just characterize all the age that has now lasted for about 2,000 years. I think on those verses, and I think of the the many different times I've taught and preached on those verses, and I think of the perspective that the events of the times as I've spoken and preached, how they have affected me, and I thought about the backdrop of world events as I have read and preached those verses, and there have been a lot of them. I started out preaching and teaching back about 1978-79, and some of the things that, that were going on, At various times, as I've taught and preached out of this passage, the Iranian hostage crisis being one of them, some of the great earthquakes that have decimated various areas, the rise of the computer and Internet age that has taken place over that amount of time, some of the recessions, which now they're calling the one we're in the Great Recession, so I guess this one's worse, but there have been several over the years. I picture the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism, And I remember about 1991, the Persian Gulf War, the first one, the development of the European common market and a common currency system called the euro and how that took place. 
and how some of our presidents and leaders have talked about the new world order, and then one that will always stand out in the minds of us alive today, 9-11, and then now, of course, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Those are just a few of the things that have gone on in about 30 years, and that's just a little drop in the bucket when Jesus talked about the age that's now 2,000 years plus long. And so I try to weigh it all out. I look at those events and I have a tendency to say they point to the return of Christ. But 30 years, that's just a little bitty period of time compared to over 2,000 years. But I'm affected by all those things. They have an impact upon me and I realize they indicate we're moving along and progressing. Jesus says that's the way it would be, that our age will be characterized along those lines. And so it just gives me a perspective and I wonder what else will happen in whatever life I have left as I look at these verses and as I see them being fulfilled as we look at the times that we live in. Let's move on to verse 9. A verse that's not so terribly pleasant to look at. Verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you up. Then, referring to the end of time, it would seem, or perhaps another period of time. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and, and they will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. We read that and say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian living in the last days, but is that really talking about the last days when this will happen? Uh, We won't turn to Luke chapter 21, but I mentioned it a few moments ago. But verse 12, uh, very interesting, it's a parallel verse to what I just read. And Jesus says, but before all these things, those things that we just read, but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. And that verse gives a little different understanding. Perhaps he's talking to the original people that asked the question, his disciples. They will deliver you. Before all those things happen, they're going to drag you into the courts. They're going to bring you on trial. And so maybe he's talking about his apostles. That would be nice because that leaves us out of that suffering, doesn't it? But we can't say that for sure. Maybe he's talking about all followers, and I might add that's one of the challenges of Bible prophecy as we look at this and other passages. You can't exactly be sure. There's a certain amount of mystery concerning it all. It might be interpreted this way, but it also might be interpreted that way. And so we have to realize there's a certain amount of vagueness to it, but it is interesting that we're not necessarily promised an easy go of it. Whether the apostles are talked about here or all believers, there's that possibility of suffering for the cause of Christ, and he said that many other times, so that's a distinct possibility. But then verses 10 to 13, he says, at that time, he now seems to be getting down to the end of the age, what will happen at that time? Well, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. That doesn't sound terribly pleasant either. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So, if he's describing the end of the age, we might say, I don't think I want to live then. It doesn't sound like a a really great time because there's some unpleasant characteristics. He talks about a falling away from the true faith. That will take place at that time. There will be betrayal. Uh, one brother against another and so forth. There will be hatred. People will, will have a seething hatred toward one another. And out of all that, there will be the false prophets that will rise up and deceive those that don't understand Scripture, the Word of God. So there'll be deception. There'll be an increase of lawlessness. People will become much more wicked at that time. And because of that, there will be cold love. I really don't like to read that. 
because, because it says that there will be so much wickedness and violence in the world that the love of most will grow cold. Well, all those things could describe any age, even though Jesus talks about the age at the very end. And so again, there's some uncertainty. Uh, what time do we live in? Do we live in that time when Christ will return? We don't know because, again, these things seem to be shrouded in a certain amount of mystery. Kind of like Daniel, the book of Daniel, and some talk about the future that was revealed to him. And at the very end, God said to Daniel in chapter 12, verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. And so there was mystery with Daniel. He didn't understand the words God gave to him. God said they're reserved for the very last days. So again, if there's a certain amount of mystery to these words, maybe we're not quite there yet. But it's important to be on the alert and to study these things because as we get closer, the meaning becomes much more clear. And so that's very important to always be looking at these words that have a scratch in our heads. Like I know our midweek group is studying the book of Revelation, one of the most challenging books of the Bible. And I'll dare say it's not entirely clear to all of them as they study it. But they're working it. And as we progress through time, as we get nearer to the end, there may be some things coming through out of that study that didn't come through before the last time people looked at it. So again, it's important to be working at that. But verse 13, Jesus says, The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So regardless of the times, the challenges of the last days in particular, if we live in the last days, and they're difficult days, as it says elsewhere, Jesus assures us that if we endure to the end, if we hang in there until the end, we will be saved. Much like he said to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, to him who overcomes, he promised various things. And that promise comes down to us, to those of us who overcome. That's the challenge for us as believers, to be overcomers. It's not easy in this age or any age. And again, if we're living in the last days, it will be especially difficult. But again, endure to the end. Hang in there, hold on to the, to the faith, and, uh, and live a life pleasing to the Lord. Because if we endure, we certainly will be saved. Now, one other verse. Again, we can't look at the whole chapter, but one other verse I especially want to focus in on. Verse 14, because that verse contains the closest thing to an answer to the question, will Jesus return in our lifetime? This verse contains the closest thing to an answer to that question, so look at it carefully. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come after one critical thing, the gospel of the kingdom being preached into the entire world. I read that verse and I realize that what we do with the gospel of the kingdom has a bearing on the return of Christ and the end of the world. Do you see that? That's why I'm a kingdom fanatic. You've learned that by now. That's why I talk about it unceasingly. I've got ulterior motives. I want Christ to come back soon. I want him to come back in my lifetime. And I dare to think that if I talk about it enough, if you and I talk about it enough, if we get it out, if we get the gospel of the kingdom out, then we have something to do with the return of Christ. Because he won't come back until it goes out. You say, well, the gospel's gone out to the entire world. He said the gospel of the kingdom. We, I think, by now have realized there's a big, big difference. The gospel is to talk about Jesus saves you. And that's important. Sure he does. 
But the things concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ constitute the gospel of the kingdom. That's the whole thing. The, the, the gospel that half has been lopped off for nearly 2,000 years. And we realize there's more to it. So when that gospel goes out, then Christ can come back. So let's be kingdom fanatics, all right? Let's get that whole gospel out there. Let's do whatever we can because he won't come back. The end will not come until that thing happens. I want it to happen. I want Christ to return in my lifetime. So in a real sense, we have something to do with the answer to that question. Will Jesus come back in our lifetime? A lot depends on what we do with the gospel of the kingdom. So to really step out on a limb, I'm not going to pick a date but will Jesus return in our lifetime? Here's the safest answer I can give you. That's a possibility. Okay? It's a possibility. It could happen in our generation as easily as others believe it could happen in there. Sure, it's a possibility. Lots of things are happening that could point to the nearness of the return of Christ. And so it is a distinct possibility. I don't know a date or a time. Neither do you. But if it's a possibility, if it's even a remote possibility then that means that we plan for it and anticipate it, and that's exactly what we're called to do. We look for it. There's nothing wrong with looking and saying, Jesus, this might be the time of your return, and I, I could foresee it happening in my lifetime. If, if that could happen, we plan for it. We want to be ready for it. The worst thing in the world would be to be surprised by that day like the rest of the world will be. And there's some indication that, that believers will be in a state of sleep at the return of Christ. I don't want to be among those. I want to be a church that's wide awake. I want to be among believers that are wide awake. I want to be wide awake. I want to understand the times. I want to understand how I should live. And so I want to plan on that. I want to live as though his return could be today. Preparation is of the essence. That's the most intelligent response we can make if we believe that Jesus is going to come back. Let's plan on it, okay? Let's prepare for it. Let's not circle a date on the calendar, but let's anticipate it's on the calendar in our lifetime, and let's prepare for it. So, he's already told us several things that we need to do to get ready for it. Let's go back and make sure we're clear on those things. Number one, and he said it twice, be on guard against deception. That's what he said right away in verse 4. The first thing that he said... Be on your guard against being deceived. Verse 11, he says the same thing. Be aware of the potential for deception. So be on guard. Know that. There are those that would like to trick you. There are those who sound like they know the Bible. There are those who would try to twist Scripture and convince you. Don't get sucked in. Be prepared for that. Be on guard because you know they're out there. Secondly, anticipate ongoing political, military upheaval and natural disasters. Don't look at those things and say, aha, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow because this happened. No, no, just anticipate it. That's the way it's going to continue to be. Nation will rise against nation. There will be all that kind of turmoil. Yes, there will be earthquakes. There will be famines in various places. It's going to happen. Anticipate that and realize those are the signs of the age that we live in. Thirdly, and this is one I just feel so strongly about, zealously, I want to say jealously, maybe that works too, zealously embrace the truth and guard against falling away. Because he said that will happen. In verse 10, many are going to fall away. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus raised the question that when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on earth? Indicating, will he find any remnant 
of the truth when he comes back. That's sad that he raises the question. So because that's the way things are going to go, we need to make sure that we embrace the truth, that we love it, that we hold it dear to, to our hearts, and that we live it in every way we can, and that we guard against what will happen to the majority where they fall away. If he said most are going to fall away, let's make sure that we're not part of most. We also want to keep love alive. Because, you know, he talked about the increase of lawlessness and wickedness. Most people's love will grow cold. I'm glad he didn't say all people's love will grow cold. There'll be those pockets of genuine love that will exist. Let's make sure that we're among them. And I think that we are. Let's continue that. Make sure that Lakeshore is one of those loving havens that's still left while others have grown cold in their love. We do that by caring for each other, by uh, showing affection for one another, by just being together. I know I remind you of this a lot, but it's a good passage, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where we are told how, that we ought to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Think about how to make sure that we continue to be loving and involved in good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer we get to the return of Christ, let's make sure that encouragement characterizes our gatherings. Again, I, I find that here. Lakeshore is a loving, encouraging body of believers. Let's continue to work at that and make sure that always is the case as we move toward the time of the return of Christ. And then the final thing that uh, we look from the words of Jesus is move the gospel of the kingdom message. Let's get it out there because we want Christ to come back. It's got to get out before he will come back. I'm thinking of the verse we looked at last week out of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Did you put that on your prayer list? It's on mine. That's something I'm praying for. I hope you will join in doing that. But let's pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. In particular, this word, the gospel of the kingdom, as it spreads rapidly, that hastens the time of the return of Christ. So those are things we do to be prepared and to be ready. One writer says, as we listen to Jesus' declaration of what the course of human history will be, we must each face the inevitable question, in what way is my life related to the great events that Jesus says will take place? Am I contributing to what will ultimately result in anarchy and distress among people and in the failing of hearts for fear of what is coming to pass? Or am I contributing to the program of God which is moving through history to bring the age to its appointed climax and to bring again from heaven the Son of God to establish his kingdom over the earth. It is one or the other. When the sirens of the last day begin to moan and the panicky, jostling crowd tries to get to the door at the last moment, then will be unveiled the deceitfulness of the age. But only those who have learned to walk day by day will be able to endure to the end. And the last statement certainly is a very important point. Those only who have learned to walk day by day will endure to the end. That's our challenge. And that is the call to each one of us, is that we make sure that we walk day, day by day in such a way that we can endure to the end. Jesus says, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And so to be prepared, we are on the alert. And as the final book of the Bible says, amen, come. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer as we prepare and anticipate. Amen. May Jesus Christ come quickly.